Hello, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast hosted by your El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. I am Idali Discareño, your host for the show. We want to welcome Mr. Mike McQueen, partner at Ken Smith Law and Congresswoman Veronica Escobar. But before I do that, I'd like to take care of some housekeeping items. If you're looking for commercial real estate in El Paso, reach out to our friends at Epicenter at 915-532-3456. They have locations all over El Paso. Also, special shout out to our friends over at Sun Carpets for sponsoring our podcast room. And now, without further ado, I would like to thank Mr. Mike McQueen for hosting today's episode and welcome Congresswoman Veronica Escobar. Take it away. Congresswoman, welcome to the, uh, welcome to the chat. Hi, Mike. So great to see you and, and visit with you and visit with your members and your board who are watching in this webinar. Really appreciate your leadership and the work that you do for our community. Well, we certainly appreciate what you do. And let us get this started by, uh, this is obviously election season. Uh, we're a week away from the election and you're running for re-election. Do you want to tell us why you're doing that? Absolutely. Fundamentally, I love this community. It's, it's why I have stepped up to serve before, um, not just politically, but I have a long record of, of serving our community on boards, on task forces, supporting organizations. And you know, I've, I've been civically engaged since I moved back after graduate school in the early 90s. And, um, but I, I ran for Congress really after a decade of service at the county where I worked really hard to uh, expand access to healthcare through our work at University Medical Center, where I worked to reform local government making it more accountable, transparent, um, and, and um, ensuring the wise and strategic use of our tax dollars. Um, you know that I worked hard to rebuild after corruption scandals. And so I, I, I took that body of work and in my view, I'm, I'm working to build on it in Congress. And my first two years, I, I feel very privileged to have served El Paso uh, during a challenging time, not just in American history, but in our community's history. I'm very proud of the fact that I brought nearly $1 billion to our community from Congress in that short period of time. Funding for UTEP, for veterans, small businesses, families, especially during the pandemic, support for Fort Bliss. Um, and so there's a lot more work to do. I'm very excited about it, very privileged to serve. And that's why I'm running for re-election. And that's why I've been uh, doing outreach, asking every El Paso voter possible for their vote. And, and you've done your first two-year term, two-year term in Washington. Uh, obviously, it has been tumultuous times. What, what is your impression of Washington politics after your first term? It's, it's, it's difficult. You know, I, I will tell you, not, not only have we been facing significant challenges, you know, when I was sworn in January 2019, I was sworn into a shutdown government, um, you know, so that was one of the immediate challenges. And then after that, we had crisis after crisis, whether it be the humanitarian crisis that, um, you know, happened here in our community at America's front door uh, to the shooting, you know, when, when El Paso found herself at the intersection of America's gun violence epidemic and the hate epidemic in our country to the current coronavirus crisis. El Paso is a number two hotspot in the nation. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, I will tell you, local government 
is quicker and easier because the governing bodies are smaller. Um, you know, and, and if folks feel frustrated about the, the pace of local government, I can tell you the pace uh, at the federal level is exponentially more challenging. You have to build a lot more relationships. You've got to work with a lot more people. You've got to convince a lot more folks to support your work in your community and your agenda. That's why I'm so proud that in my first year in Congress, I brought nearly 20% of Congress to El Paso. That was unprecedented. Um, and so every group of members that I brought to El Paso, we didn't just talk about immigration. We didn't just talk about the border. We talked about ports of entry and our economy and the critical role that El Paso plays as being a uh, an economic lifeline to the rest of the country. And that's how I've been able to move El Paso's agenda through the House of Representatives. Um, I'm going to keep bringing folks to El Paso to see our fabulous community post-pandemic, um, but it's it's definitely challenging, that's for sure, Mike. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Well, and, and thank you for bringing them to El Paso, and that brings us to the question that we're asking all the candidates, and and that is, uh, and, and perhaps uh, they have told you too what they appreciated about it, but what are the three things that you love most about El Paso? Oh, that's a tough one. There's so much. I need my top 10. Um, <laughs> well, number one, the people. That There really are no better people to be found anywhere else. And you see it, Mike, after the Sun Bowl, when people from all over the country write letters to the editor about how warmly they were received. I heard it from every single one of my colleagues who came to El Paso, who left saying, oh my gosh, people were so wonderful. So we all know that our people are number one asset. I think our weather is another incredible asset. Uh, you know, today's kind of unusual. Even though it's snowing today. So our winter wonderland outside. Um, you know, but we have the, 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 I've described our weather to be uh, similar to our disposition, very sunny, um, you know, which creates opportunity, I think, in terms of um, sustainable energy that, that, that we can build on and really kind of become an epicenter for the future in terms of energy. And then lastly, our location on the US-Mexico border. The fact that we are an international community, we're so pivotal to trade, we are a point of opportunity, we are the new Ellis Island. I love our location on the US-Mexico border. Those are my top three. And what are the three things that trouble you about the city? Or are there three things that trouble you about the city? We are facing, Mike, a renewed brain drain. Uh, you know, I, I uh, grew up with a generation that fled El Paso in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, you know, we all have uh, either children or siblings or cousins or, um, you know, grandkids, depending on, on where we are in the generational scale, who left El Paso in significant numbers. We are seeing that brain drain once again. And uh, based on where they're headed and, and why they're leaving, they're leaving El Paso because they're able to find better wages elsewhere. So the brain drain is number one. Um, that is a direct result of low wages. Number two, we live in a state that unfortunately um, still does not equitably distribute healthcare or education assets. So just as a super quick example, the state of Texas receives lots of funding for Medicare and Medicaid because of our poverty, 
but withholds that funding um, and, and reshuffles it so that it goes to wealthier communities, um, leaving us in, in a category where we receive a lower reimbursement for healthcare funding. So we still struggle with state formula funding that puts El Paso at a disadvantage that in, in areas of education and areas of healthcare. So, um, so the brain drain, uh, low wages, and uh, um, the, uh, the, the state's formula funding. But I will tell you, we have seen in terms of wages, some really good progress over the years. You look at the area of healthcare, for example, an area that I focused on when I was in county government. The um, most significant growth in salaries has happened in the healthcare industry in El Paso. And that didn't happen by accident. That happened because, you know, the county of El Paso, for example, built modern clinics, invested in the uni in university medical center, collaborated with our medical school at Texas Tech with $70 million annually in funding for contracts. We built a world-class children's hospital. So it shows that when we attack our problems, we can flip the script and make our weaknesses into an area of strength. We just need to do more of that across the board. Yeah, Congresswoman, the, the Hispanic Chamber is an advocate for small business here, in, in particularly in the El Paso region. And are there certain uh, legislative initiatives that you could foresee uh, uh, advancing on behalf of these small businesses? Absolutely, Mike. And I've been very supportive of small businesses uh, over the last two years. But I will tell you, I believe that our post-COVID approach is going to have to be a little bit different than um, our pre-COVID approach. We have seen far too many businesses that have shuttered as a result of the coronavirus. Um, in the HEROES Act, which we passed in Congress uh, over five months ago, we had robust funding for small businesses because they are the backbone of our local economies. Um, the HEROES Act, unfortunately, was not passed by the Senate. Those negotiations um, you know, are at start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, depending on what Mitch McConnell says or depending on what the president says and they're signaling. We've modified our HEROES Act to make it more palatable for the Senate. Uh, we've made all sorts of concessions, um, but what has been consistent has been support for small businesses. You know, we, we um, through the PPP loan process, about $800 million came to El Paso, and I'm very proud of that work. We were um, pretty adamant in our negotiations with the Senate on PPP uh, during the second round of PPP funding that we wanted to ensure that community and local banks received um, robust uh, amounts in order to be able to, live, to deliver for small businesses instead of large corporations that had other ways of accessing capital. Um, in the post-COVID world, we're going to need to make, in my view, significant investments, grants, um, and not loans necessarily, some loans, but I, I, I think heavy emphasis on grants, on helping save the small businesses that have been able to stay afloat and help those who have shuttered to rebuild. I think life is gonna be very different um, for everyone. And we've gotta do everything possible to make investments on the front end to save our economy and small businesses are central to that. 
Are, are there particular industries uh, and types of small businesses that you feel like would would need these kinds of assistance or should get these kinds of assistance? We've had this debate internally, believe me. We've talked about restaurants. Um, we've, we've talked about things like mom and pop grocery stores that are important. Um, the kind of small businesses um, that um, operate as an alternative to monopolies, uh, so to speak. My view is I don't want us to pick winners and losers. I want there to be an across the board approach because invariably when we pick winners, um, you know, who's going to get the lion's share and we, we pick, you know, who the priority should be, we always will leave others out. And so, you know, I think there are ways to approach this that makes sense um, and ways to approach this in terms of looking back on how a small business was doing, how many jobs they were supporting, you know, their payroll, um, uh, but also, you know, not just reward longevity, but also those that were starting up in the middle of a pandemic that, that, that really struggled. So I don't want us to, again, pick winners and losers. I think we need a, a very holistic approach. How would, speaking of, obviously the pandemic is the, it's the number one topic nowadays, but how would you evaluate the federal government's response to the pandemic? Very mixed. Um, you know, we, we had in the house from the get-go a very science-based approach and one that um, heavily invested in America. We had to negotiate with a Senate that really stripped much of what we wanted to do. Um, and that was challenging for us. And so, uh, but we, you know, we got the first few bills out of the house, but things that they stripped, for example, um, were more significant and more flexible funding for state and local governments. Um, you know, that has been a problem uh, all along. Uh, also funding in terms of education, making sure that we had uh, robust funding for school districts so that they could create their hybrid approaches based on what was happening in their district. The Senate wanted to only fund schools that would completely reopen. You know, that's, we had to negotiate there. Um, testing, we have long called for a national testing strategy. Um, that has been rejected, not just by the Senate, but by the White House as well. You know, we have also looked at wanting to keep uh, data by the CDC so that we would know about areas that were hardest hit so that we could understand going forward what was needed. That was taken out. You know, so the, the, it's hard in divided government to get everything that you want. And so while I think we did a very good job of getting resources to our communities near the beginning, obviously th that has not been sustained. And, and I will tell you, I think that the White House's lack of using the DPA, the Defense Production Act early on was, a, was crippling to um, uh, healthcare facilities. I heard that directly all across the country and in El Paso. Um, the inability for, for, the, for the White House 
to come up with a binational COVID plan. I've been calling for that from the get-go. I finally had to uh, file legislation for it. That should be a fundamental role uh, within the CDC. And we've been having to push the CDC, which has been so politicized, uh, to do its job. So it's it's been mixed. You know, the resources came uh, swiftly and robustly at the beginning, but those areas of wide disagreement are what's keeping us from doing more. Do you think it's possible to get bipartisan support for a stimulus bill and maybe after the election next week? I hope so. And we have to, you know, it, it, my concern is, is that it will depend on the mood of the president. If he signals that he wants something and pressures uh, Senator McConnell, it'll happen. We've been doing nothing but compromise in the house, trying to renegotiate, um, but also holding firm to our values. As one example, again, making sure that our school districts retain the local control they need with the funding we're gonna give them, as opposed to what our Senate colleagues want, which is to say one size fits all, either they open to get the money or or not. Um, so if, you know, I, I think it will just depend on the signals that we get from President Trump. If we have a, a Biden victory, um, I know we will get something done very early in January, but that's so late, Mike. People are in need now. Um, one of the things, you know, the uh, uh, I understand that the, the mayor of Wattis this morning talked about limit restricting uh migration from the from the United States into Mexico but uh, clearly there's been a clamp on on non-essential traffic coming over the border into El Paso uh, for six seven months now and that's had a tremendous impact on on some of our small local businesses particularly those downtown uh, is there anything that you can foresee that can be done for for those businesses or for our region uh, with regard to immigration policy? Well, I think, number one, this is why we need robust small business support and funding in a COVID relief package. But number two, you know, back to what I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, this is why we need a binational COVID plan. The reality is you cannot shut the border down. You just can't. In doing that, you will decimate not just some local businesses near the border, but you make a, a serious negative impact on the supply chain that helps fuel the Texas economy and indeed the national economy. And that's why since the early spring, I've been working with anyone and everyone on a binational COVID plan. This really should have come from the White House. I've had conversations with Dr. Anthony Fauci about it because I think it's the role of the task force as well. It's the role of the CDC. Um, in the absence of leadership from the CDC or the White House, I have turned to the US-Mexico Border Health Commission and the new executive director that that position was vacant uh, for most of the summer. And I've asked her to please lead the science-based planning. I've already talked to the speaker and to leadership about funding the plan, but we need physicians and scientists to develop the plan across the border. Um, I told her I would do everything possible to convene and to help convene, but it really is the, the you know, a role of, of Again, if not the White House, if not the CDC, then the next best convener is the U.S.-Mexico Border Health Commission. She's working on it. 
Um, she told me that she wants to convene these leaders very soon. She's been trying to expedite this. I'm hoping to address the group so that we can have that plan and then get it funded. Uh, we got a we got a question here from uh, one of the listeners on Facebook Live. Uh, what will you do, especially as relates to helping small businesses with burdensome rules and regulations? Well, we've got to hear about those. And so that's why I am a big believer in town hall meetings. Um, I have uh, outreach workers uh, in the office whose goal it is to meet with stakeholders uh, in various different sectors of the community. It's why I have, you know, what I consider a very good relationship with you at the Hispanic Chamber, um, with the Greater El Paso Chamber of Commerce as well. I need to learn from you all what those impediments are so that we can work together to fix them. And so every time the Hispanic Chamber has brought forward um, either legislation to help co-sponsor or issues that we can work on, those, of course, immediately become priorities for my office. And so to um, your Facebook listener, I think your participation in an organization like the Hispanic Chamber is critical because they work with my office on those issues. Um, but also, if you're not a part of an, an organized group, please reach out directly to me with specifics about what you see as impediments so that we can work together. Here's another interesting question. Uh, what two things would you change today nationally if you had a magic wand? Oh my gosh. Um, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, our economy, number one, our economy's in the tank. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's the, the small businesses are shuttering, unemployment filings are up. Uh, I am really, really worried about our economy and where we're headed. But even before the coronavirus, Mike, and to your, to the, the person who asked the question, we already saw uh, challenges with our economy. I know that the stock market is frequently used as a measure, but for me, what I use as a measure is what I'm hearing from constituents. And frankly, the coronavirus has laid bare um, the, the huge disparities in the economy between, um, you know, people who are completely devastated by the economic downturn and those who have made hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, that to me is an indicator of an economy that doesn't work for everyone. Um, so that would be number one. Number two, honestly, I feel like we, we the, the climate emergency. If I could wave a magic wand um, and address that, not just for future generations, but in fact, for our generation, we are bearing witness to some of the um, most daunting challenges as it comes to the climate crisis, shrinking coastlines, droughts and wildfires that are um, burning up huge swaths of land. And, and it's not just the United States, obviously it's all across the globe. It's what's driving mass migration. It's something that we did not address early enough and it is now in a state of emergency. So I think those would be the two things that if I had that magic wand, I would change uh, immediately. Um, now, here's one that's maybe a specific to the person, but uh, but I will I will read it to you anyway. Uh, Congresswoman Escobar, my daughter is a nursing student at Texas Tech, and I'm horrified they're being asked to do weekend clinicals ten hours on both Saturday and Sunday in hospitals overrun by COVID patients. UMC is one location. This is a dangerous and frivolous action that should be stopped at once, unless the situation is remedied. 
she has two young children at home that could be at risk as well. What do you suggest be done about this? Well, God bless our healthcare and frontline uh, and essential workers. Um, our healthcare workers are especially at risk. You know, one of the things that we've been seeing, unfortunately, um, as as the numbers have increased, the 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 positive numbers and the hospitalizations and the the use of ICU beds. We are unfortunately seeing more healthcare workers getting sick as well because of their exposure. And of course they take that exposure and that risk home to their families, um, which is terrifying. Uh, you know, I, I, this is the first I hear about that. I would suggest, um, I'm sure there's a structure internally at Texas Tech, or I assume there is, uh, as there is in every educational institution um, for uh, folks to be able to filter up their concerns and their complaints. And so um, your daughter is a nursing student. I would recommend that she, um, you know, maybe even organize if there's other nursing students who have the same concerns and fears and together they come uh, forward and request a meeting with Texas Tech leadership to share those concerns. So um, I, you know, I'm a big believer in always trying to work internally and giving people a voice. And so she may want to collaborate with other peers of hers, other students who feel the same way so that they can speak in unison. And um, when you have uh, you know, this is kind of the fundamental behind the labor movement. When you have uh, a whole group that speaks with one voice, there's more power, especially with an, an, a large number of voices. Uh, we had a new Supreme Court justice sworn in this morning or last night, I guess it was. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about, uh, number one, the Supreme Court justice being sworn in and number two about, uh, uh, I guess it's now Justice Barrett uh, individually? You know, I, I know only what I've read about um, the newest Supreme Court justice. Um, you know, she's she's uh, essentially an academic, has never tried a case before a court of appeals. It really only has two years of experience, trial experience, um, you know, has not the kind of record in terms of experience that I think a, a justice in the highest court of the land uh, should hold. And um, so that to me is deeply troubling. The, the way that all of this unfolded is, is, is equally troubling to me because th there was a precedent when um, President Abraham Lincoln had the opportunity to make a, an appointment to the Supreme Court during an election and chose not to because the, you know, the, 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 an election is, is to me a really kind of sacred event. It's what it's, it's when people come forward to determine the direction of their country or their state or their community. We were in the middle of an election when the Senate, when the, the president and the Senate decided to push forward this nomination, despite the precedent that had been set by uh, president Abraham Lincoln. And despite the assurances by um, GOP members of the Senate who promised they would not do it essentially. So, you know, folks who went back on their word, it was, um, 
you know, it was just, a, I think, a, 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 a very troubling moment. We now, um, you know, she's on the Supreme Court. I am in favor now as a result of, of, of this. I'm in favor of reforms. What those reforms look like, um, I think, should be up for debate. But it is clear to me that there's no honor for keeping your word in the Senate. There's no honor for precedent by the president. And um, so I think then we are going to need to take a serious look at, at how to reform things. Let me get back to the uh, coronavirus uh, crisis right now. Here's a question. Uh, what will you do to ensure when a vaccine is available that El Paso gets its fair share? Uh, uh, but due to our recent increase more than just, maybe more than just a fair share. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually um, had a similar approach in the HEROES Act. We were seeing from very early on that communities that have um, uh, significant minority populations were being disproportionately impacted. So when you look at the numbers, for example, for Hispanics, you know, Paso, 80%, 80 to 82% Latino. When you look at the disproportionate impact on our population, we are getting sicker. Uh, Latinos get sicker at three times the rate as our white neighbors. We are getting, we are dying at twice the rate and our children, Latino kids, are eight times more likely to be hospitalized. And, and there are a number of reasons for that. In fact, I sounded the alarm about that early on because that is exactly what Dr. Fauci warned me about in a conversation that I had with him about what communities like El Paso could expect. He said, and in his words, and this, this made my jaw drop when he said this, he said a community like El Paso, because you are a high percentage minority population, you should consider yourself as vulnerable uh, as a nursing home or an assisted living facility. And that means your approach should be similar. And in other words, you've got to surge resources to very specific populations like um, essential workers. And, you know, the, you've got to have a, a plan, a specific plan. Well, I, I, you know, put out a press release. I sent a letter with that information to the city, the county, the state delegation, wanted everybody who was going to be using the resources that we appropriated to understand that, you know, how they probably should be used um, once they got to the local level. And so in my view, and I argued this as we were writing the HEROES Act, because of Dr. Fauci's warning to black and brown communities across the country through those words, then the resources should, should be appropriated that way. And in fact, I was able to get that into the HEROES Act where minority communities and vulnerable communities and communities that are seeing um, high uh, uh, instances of infection and illness and hospitalizations, et cetera, should be prioritized and get the most resources immediately because they're the, they're the communities that are in most need. That would be my approach. I would take a very similar approach once a vaccine is created. Have had this conversation a number of times with House leadership. And um, we have all now come to a place of agreement. And, and I'll, just as a footnote, that was one of the things the Senate took out in the recent negotiations. 
was that priority, the prioritization that I was able to get in. And so, I mean, thankfully, the speaker has held firm and said, no, let, you know, let me tell you the stories I'm hearing from our members who are coming back from communities that are at high risk and that are suffering disproportionately. So thankfully, it is a priority for the house. Um, and I anticipate it will continue to be a priority when it comes to a vaccine, but I will absolutely make sure it remains a priority. Uh, here's another question that's come in. You said earlier that shutting down the border would be detrimental to the community, but the city manager stated yesterday that one-fifth of cases in the recent COVID spike came from people traveling from Mexico. How do you balance fair immigration enforcement, the economy, and public health safety? There's no doubt that we're vulnerable um, without a COVID by national plan. That's why I'm advocating for one. What um, the uh, by national plan would do is ensure that both sides of the border are utilizing um, the same kind of resources, have the same kind of rules and the same kind of enforcement, as well as the same kind of treatment. And let's, let's just take a step back and imagine at some point in the future, hopefully, and we know that this day will come, when the US gets past these really very difficult COVID days. What if Mexico does not? Then are we gonna keep the border shut? And are we going to um, slow down trade and even essential travel? We can't conceivably do that and keep a healthy economy. There is just, there's no way to have a shutdown border and a healthy economy in our region and indeed our state and our nation. We're already seeing an impact to the national supply chain headed to the Midwest. And so what do we do is the question. And to me, the answer is a COVID plan. And that requires number one, that plan to ensure that we have the same amount of testing on both sides of the border, the same kind of rules, the same kind of enforcement, and there should be, and there must be, and there needs to be significant enforcement. Otherwise, why have rules? Um, and treatment as well. So um, that's what the plan would do is determine what for our international boundary would be best. And then you, you bring in the resources to do it. And so as I've mentioned, the um, US border Mexico Health Commission will be convening. Um, you know, we're keeping close tabs on that. That was as a result of my request um, in order to draft this plan. I've already spoken with leadership in Washington about funding the plan. That is the best way to be safe and to be able to, to reopen the border to commerce, which is um, imperative to our local state and national economy. That's an interesting thought that, you know, that things have to be addressed on the Mexican side as well, or, or it doesn't do any good, I guess. Right. It's, you know, it's like having a neighbor right next door to you whose house is burning. You know, it's in your best interest, obviously, to, to ensure that that doesn't happen, you know, or there's your, your neighbors at risk for something, you know, the, it's, it's mutually beneficial to look out for one another. Uh, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense not to. Uh, this is, this is kind of a, a variation of a question I think we discussed earlier, but uh, a listener asked, what is it going to take to have Congress really sit and talk and act without so much finger pointing and back and forth to action while small businesses are in dire need? 
Yeah, I believe me. Um, you know, this is this has been um, a real source of ongoing discussion within our caucus. Um, you know, what what more should we continue to give up? You know, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Whoops. Sorry, this is what happens when all of my technology is connected. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll, the, the example of schools. So we could very easily say, and the finger pointing, you know, um, unfortunately that that doesn't go away in marriages or relationships. It won't go away in Congress or, you know, but hopefully one day there's no finger pointing at all. But for me, the question is, what, what will it take to get progress? And so that's when it comes down to a question, you know, we've, we've talked about everything um, within our caucus about, okay, let's, 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 you know, let's, let's negotiate down on this. Let's take less money over here. But there, I think with this, this particular round of COVID um, recovery funding, it's not so much the dollars as, as much as it is the policy. So the examples that I gave you, you know, whereas we want to be able to, like in El Paso, you know, the, uh, I have spoken with moms, with teachers, with dads, with superintendents, with administrators who are all concerned about reopening at the while we're the number two hotspot in the country. Well, if we acquiesce on, on wanting to give school districts the flexibility to still receive funding and not have to reopen, you know, the, the, either, either we hold firm and say, no, our schools need the money, but please don't tell them they have to reopen or they don't get the money. It's the policy issues that are at the heart of, of the problem. And, and here's the main difference, kind of the fundamental at the, that's at the at the very you know at the at the at the very foundation of the disagreement in some respects some of you know of the of our colleagues in the senate think herd immunity is the answer and for the rest of us in the house many of us in the house we think look the the we've look what happens el paso is a perfect example when you don't make an attempt to control the virus your hospitals get overrun. We're now gonna have the convention center be a site of hospital beds. We're now having to fly in outside medical personnel. It, 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 herd immunity doesn't magically just make everybody adapt. It means it stretches your resources to a point where people are dying at home. Um, you know, for, for many of us in the house, that's, that's not an answer. Um, you know, that's not an option. And so how do we create conditions that are safe? Um, how do we provide resources to people while giving them the ability to be safe? Schools are that prime example. So it's, it is a really huge challenge as to whether you give up on your, your values in order to get those dollars um, or you fight for the, the dollars, but also the guardrails. And I, I, we need the guardrails, I think. Finally, uh, one last question. And uh, this this comes from a listener, but it was actually uh, uh, kind of in line with one of the last questions that we had here, and that is, everyone in leadership wants to leave a set of legacies behind when they move on to other things. What do you want your legacy to be noted for? You know, when when I left county government, I wanted my legacy there to be that that we had 
a more ethical, transparent, professional organization than the day I walked in. And I, and I, I feel very proud of the work that um, we did. It wasn't just me, but I definitely led on many of those really tough issues on reform, internal reform, on good governance. I also wanted my legacy to be about healthcare. And that's why I was so deeply invested in um, University Medical Center, our clinics, our children's hospital, our relationship with Texas Tech, where we're growing nurses and doctors. Um, so I hope that that's part of the legacy that I left behind at the county. Um, with the federal government, I would really love to see El Paso uh, continue a, a very positive trajectory but sort of on steroids. I've been working very closely with UTEP and the Department of Defense on linking our engineering department uh, in, in a way to create a whole new economic development ecosystem with much better jobs that utilize the talent of our UTEP graduates and that leverage our location um, uh, on the US-Mexico border and our great asset of Fort Bliss have been working with Lockheed Martin and others. Uh, if we're able to make this happen, it will create a whole new economic engine that I think will be pretty remarkable and wonderful. Um, but I think ultimately, I hope people, long after I'm gone, you know, I, I hope my service to our community, that my passion uh, for the people is ultimately the legacy that people remember me by. I suspect it will be. And thank you, Congresswoman uh, Veronica Escobar, for being with us today on Election Chat. And uh, best of luck next week. Thanks, Mike. Thanks to everybody at the chamber. Thanks to everybody participating. Really appreciate you.